yeah, it's, it's, you're spending a little bit more money, but you're also going to spend way more money if you like go to that race and you're not prepared to take in the nutrition properly. And then you like your race completely blows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, some people, some people just basically do the race nutrition for every, I mean, you know, Caleb, who we talked to on this podcast, uh, from flow formulas. I mean, he's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't consume anything other than flow when he's riding. It doesn't matter if it's his own two ride. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and it's just Dylan and I this week. We had some good listener questions come in about commuter miles, fueling long rides, the 80-20 training model, and how to determine if you're hitting your genetic ceiling. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. Dylan and I mentioned in today's show that we use Flow Drink Mix regularly in training and racing, and we highly recommend you check it out, too. They've got high-carb drink mixes, electrolyte replacements, recovery formulas, and more. So head over to flowformulas.com today to get your hands on some of the best endurance feeling products in the market and use discount code IgnitionPodcast for 10% off your order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, send those to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast or hit us up on Instagram and send us a DM. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so if you're just listening to this, you can't tell, but Dylan and I are literally wearing the exact same outfit today. We've both got our Leadville uh, hoodie on and our Ignition beanie. Yeah, so. part of part of that was planned, part of that wasn't planned. I got on, and I was. <laughs> we were both wearing the Leadville hoodie, and I pointed that out, and I said, how funny would it be if we were also both wearing our Ignition beanie, and Adam was like, you should go put it on, so here we are. Yep. Uh, okay, so few questions today. So first one, we're going to hop right into it. Um, we, we've sort of touched on this a little bit before, um, but this one comes from uh, listener David, uh, and he's talking about commuting as training. So he says, hi, I love the show. Got a question. I recently started a new job that has extended my bike commute to the extent that I'm riding 50 minutes to an hour a day in zone two. He says, I don't measure stuff on my commutes. Should I even bother taking this load into account when I am planning my training, or is it basically negligible? Uh, thanks, David from Indy. Mm. So his commute total time is fifty minutes to an hour a day. Yeah, so I'm guessing it's I'm, yeah roughly thirty minutes each way. Thirty minutes each way. Yeah, thirty minutes is a pretty short ride, I will say. Um, and and he's not asking what he can do in regards to training in his commute, he's just asking whether he should measure that 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would measure it. I don't see a reason why you shouldn't measure it. Um, and he said he's, he, he's doing it at zone two. Uh, yeah, he says roughly, I mean, he, he's not, he's not collecting data, so he doesn't know exactly, but he says yeah. zone two ish. I don't see a reason why not to measure it. I mean, if he commutes to work every single day, that's an extra five hours, you know? Agreed. Yep. Yeah. I would totally measure yeah. it. Yep. Um, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I know he's not asking what to do with regards to his training, but I don't. I also don't see a reason why you can't lengthen your commute on certain days. Um, so instead of 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back, maybe... Maybe on some days you do, you know, an hour back or two hours back. You know, you, you make that commute longer to get in more training. 
Uh, I don't know what his exact schedule is like, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, and part of that would be, you know, like if you're just doing 30 minute rides 10 times a week, like you're going to get some additional stimulus from that. Um, but it would Mm -hmm. be more beneficial if it was like 30 minutes on top of an hour ride. So now you're extending that hour ride to 90 minutes or your 30 minute ride to 90 minutes. So on, um, you'd get a little bit more Mm -hmm. stimulus out of something like that. So I think that's the main motivation for doing that. Plus it'd probably save you some time for, for your other workouts. Yeah. What I, what is, what is the point at which you would not record a ride like 10 minutes? Do you think if it was like a 10 minute commute you wouldn't bother or would you still record it i uh, um so yeah like whenever yeah whenever i've bike commuted in the past i actually record it just because i want to i want to if i'm only riding for 10 minutes i want that ride to probably be negligible so like i'll probably Mm -hmm. record it just so i know like my heart rate's staying below like 110 you know um yeah now whether or not it like matters that you upload it to training peaks like no, but like just to have the metrics on board, I think is beneficial. I I have so this gets into people who are obsessed about uh, training peaks metrics like CTL, for example, mm-hmm. um, and and weekly TSS. Uh, I have I have known people who you know they don't just count the TSS from their rides; they count the TSS from walking the dog if they do gardening they do they count the tss from gardening count the tss from like you know strength training taking their kid to the park (laughs) yeah that sort of thing like they're trying to measure tss from every remotely physically active thing that they do throughout the day um which i i think is a bit overboard but i think if you're riding your bike for 30 minutes twice a day i mean that that you should be recording that for sure. I mean, I would put it this way. Like, would you would you go out for a five-hour zone two ride and just not record it? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, I yeah, if you're accumulating five hours, like, that that should absolutely be recorded. Um, yeah. and, and it should be taken into account with your training plan, too. You know, mm-hmm. you're not training 10 hours a week. You're training 15 hours a week. So, um, you know, keep, keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit... It's a bit of a weird way to structure training. For example, if you didn't have a nine to five job, there's no way that you would ever structure training to have two 30 minute rides in your, mm-hmm. uh, for five days a week in your 15 hour week. But you know, we all, uh, you know, we all have other obligations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like if you took two, if you took two individuals and you put them on the exact same training plan, but one person, you gave them an additional, uh, you know, five hours a week of, of this, like, you know, two times 30 minute endurance rides a day, um, you'd see a difference in their, in their fitness in performance. Yeah. I mean, if we take somebody who rides 10 hours a week and then the same person rides 10 hours a week, but then on top of that, they ride, they do two 30 minute zone two rides per day, five days a week to make it 15 hours a week. For sure. My money's on the, on the person that's doing 15 hours a week. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a, you know, I think that goes for all the other, you know, uh, working professionals too. Like sometimes you can get in this mindset where like you only have 30 minutes. So like it's, you don't think it's worth it to get that 30 minute ride in before work. So like, you're just going to save your workout for after, but if you could do like 30 minutes in the morning and then still do your workout in the afternoon, like those 30 minutes 
they add up. You know, if you do that three times a week and you're getting an extra hour and a half of training in, you know, mm-hmm. that'll add up over weeks and weeks and, you know, months into sure. your training season. For sure. All right, cool. Okay, so the next one comes from uh, listener Scott. He's talking about fueling contents for long endurance rides. Uh, he says, so I'm about 15, I'm training about 15 hours a week and race 100 plus mile mountain bike races. I spend a lot of my time training in zone two using Dylan's competitive endurance plan. And I'm curious how I should be fueling these long, easy rides. If I'm relying mostly on fat, should I be using carbs? Should I be, should I not be using a more carb focused, uh, sports drink like flow or scratch and instead just be eating a rack of pork ribs? Am I wasting money on these sports drinks for the, for these rides for context, I'm 53 years old, 190 pounds with around 10% body fat, and he's been racing Cat 1 for many years. Thanks. Love for the pod, Scott. So I think that I think that the misconception here is that because you're burning a high proportion of fat relative to the other zones in a Zone 2 ride, and oftentimes that's, that's cited as a benefit of a Zone 2 ride, um, people assume that you need to fuel these rides with fat, which you don't need to fuel with fat. You have fat on your body, which is fueling the ride. You know, you don't need to add extra fat to the system <clears throat> in order to fuel it. You already have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of calories of fat on your body that are going to fuel the ride. Um, which then, I, I, so I think fueling the ride with fat is out of the question. But I guess, I guess then the question could become, uh, you know, for a zone two ride, how how much carbohydrates do I need, or should I just do it? Yeah, fa- do it fasted. Which I feel like we've answered the fasted training question mm-hmm. multiple times. Yeah, but we can get into specifics. And 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 for those who haven't listened to those episodes. Um, you know, the fasted training research is somewhat mixed. Uh, I would definitely never do fasted intensity, but there's there's perhaps arguments to be made that fasted lower intensity rides may or may not have benefit. Um, I personally never, never do fasted training. Um, I'm like, I'm one of these people that really craves breakfast in the morning. And when I get back from a fasted ride, it's just... I spend the next two hours eating. So, (laughs) um, I, and I, I don't generally prescribe fasted training. And I think, I think that fasted training was really popular. I don't know, five ish years ago. And it's, it's starting to starting to decrease in popularity as people are starting to realize the benefits of being properly fueled with carbohydrates. Um, but we could get in, we could get into specifics about, how 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 much carbohydrates you need for a zone two ride sure um yeah and and i think it's important to note too that just because you're burning a higher percentage of fat when you're riding in zone two it doesn't mean that you're not burning any carbohydrates yeah exactly so and and i think that's that's a misconception too is that people you know they they get into this mindset that they're in this fat adapted state but Mm -hmm that doesn't mean that that's your only fuel source. And when your carbohydrates run out like that, that's usually pretty bad news. Um, right. Like, yeah, you know I mean? You can, you can still carry on at a low intensity when you're, mm-hmm. you know, bonking or carb stores have, have run out. Um, but if you can avoid that, you're, you're going to be able to hit zone, you know, higher, higher, uh, 
you know, higher percentage of zone two and feel better too. Like that's, that's part of it too, is like, you're not going to feel so And you really do, you really do have to take recovery into account here. If you, Mm. if you just generally stay in a well-fed carbohydrate state throughout your training, your recovery is going to be improved versus if you're trying to play around with these fasted days. Um, you know, what, while there may be some acute benefits to doing fasted rides here and there, it's it's an added training stress that is only going to impair recovery if you're if you're trying to restrict carbohydrates. So, yeah. So so let's let's talk a little bit. Like, what do you do? You change your fueling for long endurance rides versus like a mid volume intensity ride. Yeah. So uh, it, there's there's a lot of factors that it depends on. If I am trying to train my gut to, you know, handle my race nutrition, there are times where I will I will basically replicate my race nutrition during a long zone 2 ride even though I don't need that many carbohydrates per hour for that ride. Right. Um but that being said, I would say that and and I would say that most of the time when I'm doing a zone two ride, I'm not, I'm not consuming as many carbohydrates as if I was doing a high intensity workout or racing. Um, like when I'm doing those, I'll probably shoot for, you know, 80 plus grams of carbohydrates per hour. And I'm not shooting for that when I'm doing a lower intensity zone two ride generally. Uh, it's probably closer to 50, 50 to 60 grams per hour. And because you're going at a lower intensity, your body can handle more complex sources of carbohydrates. So, you know, stuff with stuff with fiber, stuff with protein, stuff with fat. So I'm thinking about, uh, bars versus just straight drink mix or gels. Um, I generally don't advocate for, for more complex <laughs> food while you're racing because the higher the intensity, the worse your gut works. And you just want the simplest food possible. And that basically what that, that means is that you want uh, carbohydrates with no fiber and, and no protein and no fat in the optimal ratio of multidextrin to fructose coming in and, 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 essentially nothing else to just because that's only going to that's only going to slow the absorption rate down and you don't want anything coming in that's going to slow the absorption rate but if the intensity is low in a zone two ride you know that's it's not the biggest deal yeah yeah and in like for me personally i you know all of my training i consider to be you know it's training for for specific races um Mm -hmm. now if if i'm like you know, early into the base season and the race season is, you know, a couple months away. Like I don't, I don't get as focused on it, especially if I'm doing like cross training and stuff. But, um, the closer I get to race season, like the more, uh, the more simulated my, my nutrition is based on, you know, what I plan to do for races. And I, and I like to keep things pretty simple. Like, you know, I'll, I'll use a, uh, high car drink mix like flow, uh, Honestly, I, I'm, you know, if I'm doing four hours, like I'm probably just bringing four bottles of 90, 90 gram, mm-hmm. uh, flow mix. Yeah. Um, if I'm doing more than that, if I'm doing more than four hours, then I'll usually like throw in a couple additional water bottles and like some gels in for me, when I'm using gels, I use like one flavor and like, keep it super simple. It's like, I always know yeah. what I'm, what to expect. Um, and, and I, I just like, don't even, I rarely like throw in like a, 
you know, a bar or like I'll throw in like some of the like um, cliff blocks or something like that, like the gummies. But um, that's usually about it. Like I, I try not to not to mess around with it too much. Um, like, yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's you're spending a little bit more money, but you're also going to spend way more money if you like go to that race. and You're not prepared to take in the nutrition properly and then you're like your race completely blows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, some people, some people just basically do the race nutrition for every, I mean, you know, Caleb, who we talked to on this podcast, uh, from flow formulas. I mean, he's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't consume anything other than flow when he's riding. It doesn't matter if it's his own two ride. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that there's, uh, there, and, and like I said, I do that as well when I am trying to train my gut to handle race nutrition. I do think that there's something to be said for if, if you're in the middle of a big base block and you're spending, you know, a lot of time on the bike and the calories that you're consuming on the bike are actually making up a fairly large proportion of your total nutrition for the day, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I do think that there's, there's perhaps something to be said that it would, it would be, it would, it would not be a bad thing if you were actually getting some nutrition with your on when you're consuming it on the bike, as opposed to straight empty calories, carbohydrates. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I could see that I could see that going either way, but I, I think it's almost less of a performance thing and more so of to be a healthy individual that's meeting all your nutrient needs. It's not a bad thing to get some micronutrients coming in and, you know, things like fiber and all of that in with your, with your on the bike nutrition. If it's not absolutely critical that you have the highest <clears throat> absorption rate that you possibly can. For sure. Caleb, if you're listening, we just came up with another product idea for you. So, <laughs> um, cool. I think, I think we knocked that one out. Um, okay. So this next one comes from Seth, who's actually one of our ignition coaches. Um, and he's talking about 80, 20 training plan zones. Uh, he says, good morning. Uh, this must've been from a while ago. So good morning to you, Seth. Uh, I have a question about training zones. I've been using 80-20 endurance plans for a few years now, and the zones seem too high for endurance-based on what I've heard from the podcast. Curious what you think. Based on the conversation about uh, endurance heart rate zone caps, mine should be approximately 143 beats per minute. His max heart rate is 193, resting heart rates uh, 50, so 65%. Uh, gets him 93 plus 50, so 143. So that's like the uh, the equation that we use to estimate like your endurance ride heart rate ceiling. Um, sure. So he says, the power zones also seem off. I've often felt like I'm going way too hard on my easy days, and I'm wondering if I should be taking it a little bit easier. A quick explainer. If you aren't familiar with the 80-20 zones, zone one is recovery and warm-up slash cool-down. Zone two is easy zone. Zone X is to be avoided. Zone three is tempo. Zone Y is also to be avoided. Zone four is short intervals, like two and a half minutes. And zone five is for really short intervals, one minute or less. Um, then he uh, then he gives us some 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 gra- or some charts here showing his running and cycling heart rate and running and cycling power zones. <laughs> I guess so. What I'll say here is that I would. I guess I would need to see specifically how they're determining because he doesn't. He doesn't explain what 
Like what percentage of FTP is this easy zone that he's saying is too high? Yeah, so it's 70 to 83% is their zone two, which would be, you know, what they're mm-hmm. calling the easy zone. Um, right. Which I would say that it, that does sound pretty high. Yeah, so here's what I was going to say about that is that there are many different ways. So zone two training seems to be getting more and more popular. Uh, if you want to call it zone two training, if you want to call it polarized, pyramidal, 80-20, these are all kind of, these are all, all every all those terms that I just threw out there are all kind of hinting at the idea that a large percentage of your training should be this zone two endurance training that's zone two in like a five or six zone model. And then in a three zone model, that'd be zone one. Um, But a large, they're all hinting at this idea that a large proportion of your training should be easy. Um, Probably 80% or more of your training should be easy. And then what you do with that remaining percentage, there's still, you know, it's up for debate. Could it, could it be pyramidal? Could it be polarized? Could it be sweet spot? Whatever. But so then, so then there's a there's a large discussion about okay, where how do we define this easy zone? And you know, most of the research, research points to it's the you know it's the first ventilatory threshold that's the cutoff for this easy zone. And 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 there's uh, research showing that if you go above this zone, then then there's uh, you know you're accumulating stress on your autonomic nervous system. So that uh, that is the cutoff point. And there are many there are many ways to estimate where that lies, and the important word there is estimate. These are all estimates, and and I think that the only true way to find out where that point lies is if you you know do blood lactate testing, right? right. Um, which makes it, <laughs> which unfortunately makes it quite difficult for just your average rider to figure this out. Um, there's, you know, there's rules of thumb like the talk test uh, and 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 all of this. But I, again, those are those are estimates. And if you're really anal about being about being as precise as possible with your training, I would say what you need to do is is to. Uh, is to do blood lactate testing, either get a lab to do it or, or people are even doing it themselves at this point. Um, and, and, you know, for, for a guy like Seth, if you're, if you're really worried that you're doing these rides too hard, you could find that point. Um, there is research to suggest that highly, you know, highly trained athletes, we're talking about pro caliber cyclists, like that, that point may be a higher percentage of their FTP than just your average person. So, so these, these estimates, while they, they may put you in the right ballpark, if you want to know exactly where that point is, you should probably be doing blood lactate testing. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, let, let's just qu- quickly, you know, compare here. Um, you know, he, he, this 80, 20 model, uh, percent of FTP mm-hmm. for zone two, what they're, what they're considering the easy zone is 70 to 83%. Uh, in, in like the traditional zone six model or six zone model, um, half of that is in, is in tempo. Uh, usually zone two yeah. would be like 56 to 75 roughly, uh, percentage mm-hmm. of FTP. Um, so, you know, you're talking, yeah, more than half of, of their zone two model is, is, would be in tempo. Um, they're, they're like 
do not enter zone X is 83 to 91. And then they also have Y, which you, sh- you're, you supposedly you're not supposed to ride in, which is 100 to 102 percent. Um, I don't, I, uh, that one I, I, seems, yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't, th- first of all, I don't think that they're, and I explain this in my, uh, you know, in, in some of my videos where I talk about polarized versus pyramidal training, I don't really think that the research suggests that there are certain zones that you should not enter. Um, research on pyramidal training when it compares to polarized training has showed good results and pyramidal training is, is, is an approach that does most mostly easy training, but then you do have some work in this sweet spot zone. I think the biggest, the biggest, um, some, sometimes when people, I've seen this comment multiple times, either on my channel or on, you know, forums online or something, a criticism of my takedown of trainer road, for example, is like, is like, oh, you know, these riders are doing sweet spot or, you know, yeah, sweet, you know, sweet spot work for me or sweet spot this, sweet spot that. And it's like the issue is not doing sweet spot. It's doing sweet spot too much and too frequently, which the trainer road plans did. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily think that there are absolutely zones that you need to avoid. Um, but I guess uh, l- let's get back to the, the main question here, which is, is is this prescribed zone two that this uh, that this zone model is prescribing? Is that too high? And I'll just go back to what I was saying. There are some individuals where that may absolutely be too high, and then there are some individuals where that is that may be correct. It might depend on how well trained you are, and it might depend on you know a variety of other factors. And the only way that you would know would be as if you did blood lactate testing. So there you go, Seth. <clears throat> Get in the lab. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dylan, you got time for one more? Yeah, let's do it. All right. As long as okay, we so don't this one, yeah, <laughs> ramble we'll, on we'll, for too long we'll, and go down yeah. rabbit holes. We'll, and <laughs> We'll make it quick. So this one comes from Jim. He's talking about genetic runway. As athletes and coaches, can you predict when an athlete is nearing their genetic runway? Can you examine someone's training peaks account and predict future fitness? What metrics would you use? Age, training plan, past performances, ability to suffer, etc. I'm 54 and coming off a serious injury. I was at 4.3 watts per kilo prior to my injury, a broken neck. Yikes. Uh, what would it take to hit 4.6 watts per kilo? Would How would you build a plan to get me there? And what questions should I be asking myself, Jim? Well, some very involved questions. Probably going to... All right, well... When he says genetic runway, does he mean genetic ceiling, which is a term that we've used on this podcast before? Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of peak potential. Okay. Which will obviously, you know, change as as you progress in age. Yeah. Right. So your genetic ceiling at 54 years old is different than your genetic ceiling at, you know, 28 years old. Right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) So... Yeah, how do you know whether you've hit your genetic potential? I mean, there there's there's a wide variety of different factors here. Um and how how long you've been training for is definitely a factor. Um what volume you've been able to put in is definitely a factor. Uh for example, you know, for anyone who anyone who's been training for I'd say less than 5 years certainly, maybe even training for less than, I don't know, six to eight years. 
is probably not at their genetic potential, even if they've been doing everything right. Like they still, they still have, they still have room to go. Um, and then anybody who has been, you know, uh, their volume has been hindered by their work or their family or their life obligations. Like, let's say they, they can only do 10 hours per week, but theoretically, if they didn't have any responsibilities other than riding their bike, they could handle 20 hours per week. I mean, they are also a lot, you know, they also have quite a bit of room before they hit their genetic ceiling. Um, if you, if you've had a, now he said he was at 4.3 before the knee injury, right? Neck injury, neck injury. Yeah. I broke his neck. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, what I, I guess what I would ask him is, is, you know, were, were you maxing out on your volume to the point that you, uh, you know, you couldn't, your body couldn't handle more, not, not your schedule couldn't handle more volume, but your body couldn't handle more volume. And also how many years have you been training at a high level? Um, and, and of course there are other factors there too, but those are probably the two questions I would ask. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and as far as like, how would you build a plan to, to get him there, you know, or to try and mm-hmm. explore whether or not you're at that ceiling, you know, some things that you could try to throw in would be like a block period. Um, Dylan, you've got a couple of videos on block periodization. Um, that's yeah. a, that's a way to kind of cheat and get some extra, extra fitness. Um, if you're, especially if you're a time crunched athlete, um, another option would be to like, you know, if you have uh, vacation time that you can use to, to try and throw in one, two, three different, like, you know, big week training blocks where, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're doing 50, 70% more than a normal week. Um, sure. assuming you're, you know, you're also factoring in enough recovery to accommodate that. But, um, you know, if, yeah, if you just, if you're time crunch and you can't fit any more hours in, that could be another way to try and kind of steal some extra yeah. fitness. Um, now, but those would be the two things say, that, yeah, I will say too, that, I mean, there, there's a, there's a possibility that somebody could completely set up their training in the wrong way. Like, uh, you know, just, just, you know, they're train they're training with enough volume and they've been training for long enough, but there is the possibility that they are just, you know, complete boneheads and they, you know, they're training has been set up in the complete wrong way for the entire time that they've been training and (laughs) that if they just set up their training appropriately. And I don't think, I don't think we have time to get into all the details of what appropriately means here, but if they just set up their training appropriately, then they, they could get closer to their genetic ceiling as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and Um, Jim, I mean, you know, coming off a major injury like this too, like there, there, you have to take a little bit of caution getting back into it. Uh, f- or else you could potentially risk overtraining, um, you know, or, or burning out. So it, it's probably, I mean, n- not to try and like push coaching too much, but like this is, you're kind of the perfect candidate. Like you, you want to try and reach your genetic ceiling, but you're also coming off of an injury. So you, you have some fitness to, to rebuild, you know, how do you get there? Um, what does that training plan look like? How can you squeeze out some extra fitness? Like, you're a pretty mm-hmm. prime candidate for, for coaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing that I'll say too, is that, uh, a lot of people notice this as they, as they get deeper and deeper into training. Um, 
the returns that you, what, what is the term that I'm looking for? The returns that you get from training are, there's diminishing returns. Diminishing that, returns. There's diminishing returns from training. Uh, and that, that's, that's absolutely the case with, with fitness and with training. So you're going to see a lot of gains when you first start. And then, you know, the, the curve flattens out and you have to do, you know, you, you have to do more and more and more work for fewer and fewer and fewer returns. And then there, there <laughs> it's uh, when, when we talk about genetic seal, genetic ceiling, we're, we're talking about the point at which you, you know, the, you have, you have absolutely maxed out what you can put your body through, um, over the course of many years, probably 10 plus years, um, and you are, you are at the, you are at the flat part of the curve, right? There's, there's like, there's no more that you can bump that curve up. Right. If that makes sense. And, and what I will say is that very few people reach that point just because yeah. you hit a plateau does not mean that, you, that you're at that point. Um, there, like I, there, there are things that you can do to, to get past that plateau, but, um, a plateau does not mean you've hit that point, but you know, there, there are very few people that are doing everything right to the nth degree in their training that they've hit, they've, that they've actually hit that point. So, yeah, I agree. Sweet. We got one minute to spare. So sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. All right. Well, thanks. We'll, uh, we'll catch you next week. Yeah. Catch you later. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch y'all soon. Let's go! never driven a rally car before, but I'd imagine there are a lot of similarities between racing rally cars and racing bikes. 
Both involve speed, skill, and suspense. But one big difference is the navigator. The navigator's job is to communicate with the driver what turns are coming up, the severity of those turns, and any obstacles to look out for on course. With the help of the navigator, the driver goes faster. As athletes, we too need a navigator. This is where the coach comes into the picture. Like the navigator, the coach helps guide the athlete along the right path. When it's all said and done, the coach helps the athlete go faster. To take the analogy one step further, I'd bet the best navigators are those who used to drive themselves. Because of their own experience behind the wheel, they're better equipped to help the driver. This is what Ignition Coach Co. is all about. All of our coaches are elite level racers, and that makes them better coaches. They know how to train, how to prep, how to win, how to lose, and how to stay focused through it all because they are in the midst of that pursuit right now. Here at Ignition Coach Co., we believe that coaching and racing go hand in hand, and it's our goal to fuse those two things together. We'd love to connect you with one of our coaches. Sign up for a free consultation today. Ignition Coach Co., developing coaches, connecting athletes.